Hello, and welcome to This Changes Everything. This podcast explores a fundamentally new approach to education that redefines the very purpose of schools, to train students to become responsible and self-directed learners and to prepare them to live fulfilling and productive lives in these rapidly changing times. My name is Larry Jeannie, and for this first full episode of the podcast, I'm very happy to be able to share with you a conversation I had with three teachers that I've been working with for, for a few years now. They are Jody Trapani, Katie Kanokada, and Gary Chu. And the three of them have been working very hard for a few years to implement most of the strategies that we've been talking about. And I, it's my hope that uh, in listening to this conversation, you'll get a much better sense of uh, the work that they've been doing and how it's affected them as teachers and, more importantly, how it's affected their students. Before we get to that conversation, though, I'd, I'd like to take a few minutes just to lay out a couple of foundational ideas that serve as the bedrock that all of the work that we've been doing together is based upon. And for the sake of brevity, I've reduced the whole system down to five basic tenets. The first tenet is the most fundamental, and we have to start at the beginning and ask this question, what are schools for? Let's start with the premise that the purpose of schools is to prepare students to live fulfilling and productive lives, especially now in a time where the world is changing so quickly. You may think that that's what schools are actually doing now, that that's always been the purpose of schools, but I would argue that that's not true. And the evidence I would cite is the way that we actually measure the success of schools. Certainly for the past 30 years or so, the success of schools is measured by giving students tests and trying to assess how much of the curriculum they have mastered. It seems fair to say then that the purpose of schools as it's currently practiced is to transfer a broad and rigorous curriculum into the minds of students. And a school that's successful will do that successfully. More students will know more of the curriculum. Unfortunately, this curriculum transfer model, as I call it, um, has some really serious flaws, not least of which it doesn't work very well. Students don't actually retain much of what they are supposedly learning, even if they're doing well on tests. But there are deeper structural problems with this approach, not least of which is the fact that it turns students into passive recipients of knowledge. And that's not good training for life. If we take the premise seriously that schools are there to prepare students for their lives, it seems like a simple idea, but it actually has a profound effect on every aspect of what happens in classrooms. So if we start with that first premise, the second one must be what does it look like for a student to be prepared for life? What do schools have to do in order to get them ready? The second tenet then would be the observation that what students become in school is at least as important as the knowledge that they acquire. There are a number of attributes that a person can acquire in the course of their lives. Traits like tenacity and self-awareness and creativity the ability to work well with other people, the ability to persevere, the ability to be willing to make mistakes, and uh, when you make mistakes, to learn from those mistakes. Those attributes, it turns out, are much more important for success in life, success in school for that matter, and 
we need to take them seriously as a central purpose of school. Of course, this being human nature that we're trying to affect, you can't teach these attributes uh, like you teach the rest of the content that, uh, that occurs in any class. Instead, these are skills that have to be practiced and consistently practiced in order to strengthen them in a person. And that means that all the structures that we have in a classroom need to be reframed so that as a person does homework or prepares for a test or has a conversation with other students, we're constantly requiring them to practice tenacity, to practice creativity, to practice collaboration. The third tenet is that the classroom culture is the bedrock of everything that we do. It isn't possible for a teacher to force a student to become self-directed you can't make someone have agency. And that means that the culture is how students acquire that sense of ownership of the learning process. They do that because if everyone believes this is just what we do in this room, that we, are, we have a common purpose, that every student grow as much as possible both intellectually and personally, that we are in this together, that what we have here is a community of self-directed learners. That's when these different structures that we'll be exploring can be successfully implemented. If you don't have the culture, you can try anything you want to. Students will revert to old forms and these structures will fail. If the culture supports it and they buy into the culture and they have a sense of belonging, then it will succeed. The fourth tenet is that the classroom structures that we uh, develop have to respond to the needs of every student. That means that we can't do school in the way that we've traditionally done it, where, say, every student does the same homework on the same night, and everyone does the same activity in class every day. Um, that doesn't actually pay attention to the fact that some students get there quicker than others. Some students ha are more adept at uh, learning the new material. Some people need more practice. And if we're going to do this well, the structures that we have have to respond to that. That means we have to have lots of differentiated learning where different people do different things at the same time. Uh, it also means that we have to help students come to, um, to an understanding that they need to share the wealth, that people who do get it uh, need to become generous in uh, becoming teachers. And we have to teach students how to be teachers in order for that to happen. So there's a lot to, to do in order to make a really responsive, functional classroom. And the fifth and final tenet is that students must be taught how to be self-directed learners. There's very little in schools that trains students to actually make good decisions, to be self-aware and uh, to have a sense of agency. If we're going to replace the curriculum transfer model, it means teaching students to have that agency and that ownership of the learning process. They need to be taught to find the intrinsic motivation they have to learn, which every human being has, but which is not only not fostered in school, but often actually suppressed in school. Students, in fact, have to unlearn the bad habits of what I call doing school. Cramming for a test, regurgitating answers on a test, and then forgetting the material is a classic symptom of doing school. 
copying homework over to get points without paying any attention to learning or not learning the material. That's doing school. It's going through the motions of learning, but learning is just a side effect, if that. And the, doing school can really be a compelling simulation of learning. A student can ace every test, they can turn in all the homework, they can answer questions, but they're not really learning it because a few weeks later, a month later, two years later, it's all gone. That It hasn't actually been learned. It's been put in working memory for a little while. In order to dramatically change the motivation of students, that means we really have to reconsider grades. We have to minimize and repurpose grades. And we have to separate the feedback, which is an essential part of the learning process, from grades, which carry with them uh, all kinds of baggage that tend to uh, undermine students' intrinsic desire to learn. Now that we have the fundamentals down, the basic philosophy that underlines this, uh, this approach, let's get to the, uh, to the conversation I had with the teachers and see uh, a little bit more about how it gets implemented and what their take as the people who put it into practice, what their take on it is. So without further ado, here's that conversation. Hi, my name is Jody Trapani. I'm a math teacher at Niles North High School. I've been here for 12 years. I've taught a variety of different students and classes and levels and I started working with Larry because I just my philosophy was changing and I wanted my students to take the wheel and to take more ownership of their learning and what they were doing okay and uh, Katie hi my name is Katie Kanokada I am in my fifth year of teaching at Niles North High School also a math teacher I taught for seven years in Evanston um, primarily eighth grade, so I have a little diverse set of teaching experiences. And I first started working with Larry because I didn't find my students valuing homework, and I realized it was because I wasn't valuing homework in my classroom time. Hi, my name is Gary Chu. I am a math teacher at Niles North High School. Um, I think it's my seventh or eighth year here. I forget, at least track. Uh, I started working with Larry mostly because I wanted to stop taking up so much air in my classroom um, and I could tell that my students didn't want to hear me talk as much as I didn't want to hear myself talk as much. Okay, so what I'd like you guys to talk about first is how this has affected you, this, this approach that we've been talking about. Um, how it's affected you as a person, how it's affected your practice, and um, how it is it's affecting your students. Something um, that's absolutely changed for me, when I first started teaching here, I felt like my math students put math last. It hmm. wasn't anything they thought about other than the 42 minutes we had class. Um, There's just this culture of homework is something I do if I feel like it, and I really don't feel like it. <laughs> yeah. And it's not because they didn't value their learning. It just wasn't something they saw necessary. And so what I find now is my students come into class prepared to talk about the math, which makes everything more enjoyable. Mm -hmm. um, they've been doing their own thinking, and math class is a priority, it's not an afterthought, um, mm -hmm. and it has really fueled more curiosity and more fun in my classroom. It's yeah. More people are engaged, so it's more fun. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and uh, how about uh, in terms of your attitudes about your 
you know, your practice when you walk in the room. What does it feel like now compared to before? Do you feel that it's affected you as a person? I can speak to that a little bit. Um, I've, I felt a few years ago like I was working really hard and I cared a lot about my students and um, I wasn't seeing that same thing from my students. Mm -hmm. They didn't seem to be working hard and they didn't seem to care. Mm -hmm. But once I started kind of adapting my classroom, now I feel like I'm working less mm -hmm. and I'm able to enjoy my classroom more. And mm -hmm. the same the same thing is true of my students, only as Katie said, my students are working more, but not begrudgingly. They're just mm -hmm. thinking about math more. Mm -hmm. And so we're coming into the classroom in the same space. Mm -hmm. where we're, we're all committed mm -hmm. and um, it makes it more fun to come to work. You know, a few years ago I was exploring different career paths. What else can I do with my degree? And now like my classroom is a home for me and mm. I can't imagine leaving it. Mm. That's, and, that's huge. Yeah, and yeah. I think my students feel the same way because their affect is different in class. They want to be there. They're more invested. Everyone is just it's a more humane way of like running a group of human beings. <laughs> yeah, yeah. And uh, do you feel like you're, you're um, less responsible for, for providing motivation than you used to be you're, for the students to, to do the work, to, to learn? I mean, that you're, you're, you don't have to push as hard because they're pushing themselves? Yeah, more? yeah, that's exactly it. Like, I, I feel like my job has changed. My job is not to explain math to you. My job is not to motivate you. Mm. My job is to create a space and structures where you can do that effectively mm -hmm. for yourself. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Kind of to piggyback off of that for me, um, one of the big things that's um, been liberating uh, for my students from my perspective is providing choice for them. Mm. So for getting them to understand like it's not only what the teacher says you have to do, but creating a space and creating the structures like Jody's saying so that they can make decisions for themselves and mm -hmm. obviously it, it takes some time for them to, to learn how to make good decisions. Yes. <laughs> um, but I feel like the more that I continue to get better at understanding this work and building structures, um, the more I can help my students make good decisions. Yeah. So, so let's talk about that, teaching them to be, essentially teaching them to become more self-directed is what you're talking about, making right. good choices, mm -hmm. deciding whether they need to practice more, deciding whether they can move on. How, how do you go about doing that? I mean, you have to assume when they walk in, they don't know how to make choices because school doesn't ask them to very often. So how do you, how do you get them to acquire that? That's a skill. Right. How, so do they, how do they learn that skill? For me personally, I can't speak for Katie and Jody, but uh, I'd say for the better part of the first semester, I do a lot of hand-holding. Mm -hmm. So anytime we do a formative check-in of any type, um, I'll give feedback on it, but also when we have a, an open work day where they're allowed to, or provide opportunities to pick work that they need, I'll give strong suggestions on, I think you should work on this if you mm -hmm. got this type of thing wrong, or mm -hmm. something like that. But um, right now, as we're into the second semester of the school year, I'd say that gradually students are getting better at understanding what they need to work on. Yeah. Um, and it's a lot less of me being very explicit in directing what students should work on. Um, 
right now I feel like I'm getting to a good place. Not yeah. there, but definitely yeah, yeah, getting yeah. there. Well, you're, you're also overcoming, they've been trained for their entire, almost their entire lives in schools to do what they're told to do, basically. Right. This is, you know, the teacher runs the show, says do this, now do this, now do this. And you're asking them for the first time to not be told what to do, but to figure out for themselves what to do. That's a skill they simply, at least in academic classrooms, haven't had to practice much. So, exactly. yeah, yeah. Can I speak to that? Yes, something, please. Something that's happened this year. Um, when I first started differentiating in this open work choice environment that Gary was describing, I got really specific about doing that. Mm -hmm. And as I've evolved, I think this is my third year trying it, mm -hmm. I used to give a homework assignment and then they would make a decision of what they needed extra practice on. Mm -hmm. And what I reflected on is I was actually slowing down the pace of the class and it wasn't to their benefit. Mm. By, I was sort of micromanaging the extra practice experience. Ah. And instead what has happened is I don't take a full day to give a quiz anymore because I don't need to. Mm -hmm. I've realized the quizzes or formative check-ins or small things yeah. are just as powerful and allows them to make a choice then instead of making a choice three times and then taking a quiz and making another choice. Ah, okay. It's really been great to yeah. kind of hold on to those concepts until it's time for a check-in yeah. and then differentiate. So my students love quizzes. Uh-huh. <laughs> they're not There's graded. a change of pace. Seriously, but it's yeah. not graded, but they're almost to a point of desperation. Like, do I really know this? Can you wow. let me check in with myself? Because I need to know if I'm doing extra practice this right. weekend. They're almost putting me in my place with differentiation, <laughs> which is crazy. Yeah, well, it's, it's called co-evolution. <laughs> you know, you're, you're evolving with them. Um, and, and I think that brings up a, a really important uh, fundamental idea that the students need lots and lots of feedback but we need to extract grades from that process because grades are so uh, fraught with with meaning and so much sabotage their internal motivation to learn because you're doling out points that they need the feedback but they we shouldn't give them grades unless it's really necessary and so uh, the idea of figuring out the rhythm of how often do, do they get feedback or how often do you get feedback from them? Are we ready to move on? Mm -hmm. um, and getting better and better at that is something that's probably gonna evolve over years. Um, what about other attributes that we know are important for them in lives, like uh, being tenacious or being able to collaborate well with other people or having good critical thinking skills or, uh, you know, thinking outside the box or being willing to make a mistake as opposed to, you know, being risk averse, which school really, you know, school teaches kids to be, to color inside the lines, you know, and if we want them to be creative, that's a bad thing. I think it, um, it's similar to what Katie said about the homework that she wasn't valuing it in her class or students weren't valuing it. Mm -hmm. I find that the 42 minutes I have with my students, I'm spending very differently than I was 40 or 42 years ago. <laughs> a few years ago. <laughs> That's too long. Um, it just seems like a long time. Right. Yeah. So I used to spend, you know, 95% of my time on math content. Yeah. 
and that has scaled way back. So mm. like Gary said, there's a gradual release of responsibility for being self-aware or giving feedback on quality of work. And the same is true for these qualities that I'm not afraid when a student's going down a productively wrong path, mm -hmm. I'm not afraid to take an entire rest of a period to explore that and talk about it and value it. Mm. And then just know that that's gonna put me a day off or I might have to skip a little bit of math content mm -hmm. to get there. But they'll be readier to to learn it right. because they're acquiring this these these attributes which are often denigrated as soft skills or non-cognitive skills but turn out to be maybe you know well I I think they're more important than the content itself and when they pick these things up they get better at learning but they also get better at life. I mean, these right. are things they use, you know, for the rest of their lives. And that's the trick of it is, I think probably now I spend 50% or less on math content. Whoa. But I don't <laughs> think the students are spending right. that time. Right. right. Like my yeah. structure and focus personally in my planning as a mm -hmm. teacher, less mm -hmm. than 50% of it is on math content. Wow. But then the experience for my students is there's all these other things that we value. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think that comes across. That raises this um, this idea of the curriculum transfer model, the thing that we're trying to replace. And, um, you know, it's so embedded in our experience as teachers that it's hard to, it's hard to even see it at first, that uh, we believe that what we're teaching is important. We care deeply about it or we wouldn't be teaching it. Um, and so we think that if I can get all of this into their minds, that's a good thing. That's, right? So what you're saying then is that somehow you're displacing that because something else ha has become more important, right? It isn't yes. just getting all of this into their brains. Which yes, but the interesting thing is that more of the math is getting into their brains. It's like this, we talk about this all the time as teachers, it's like this trick of, um, indirectly making you a more productive student, a more efficient student, mm -hmm. then by the end of the semester, you are capable of learning so much more, motivated to learn so much more, that the end result is the same or better mm -hmm. anyway. Mm -hmm. But mm -hmm. they're learning all these other skills. Mm -hmm. so, so would you say then, I mean, I, this is a question for all of you, would you s how would you say the amount of learning that's going on in your room compares to say four years ago? before you were doing any of this. Ha has, is that noticeably changed? Yes. 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 <laughs> it's noticeably changed since last year. Like the thing about, <laughs> seriously, the thing about this process is it took maybe a year or two for me to undo how I've been trained to do school. Yeah. And so now that I'm better, I'm still trained to do school. I still have to undo that a lot. Yeah. I had 18 years of it plus. Yeah. But now that I'm better at that, all of a sudden I realize like, oh, this could be even better. Mm. Now that this structure's in place, there's even more learning that can happen. Mm -hmm. So mm -hmm. that gradual release method is being applied more often than yeah. not. Yeah. Um, there's less direct instruction days than I had last year. And what's cool about the amount of learning, I might have had a way to do a problem that I would have directed, direct yeah. instructed. Yeah. When you create the space for them to explore it on their own, Five different students do it five different ways, and it doesn't matter how they do it. Right. What's important is they constructed that for themselves. They right. learned it's important to share it with someone else. Right. And they learned it deeper then. 
Right, right. And so, so by not telling them how to do it, you're almost requiring them to be more creative, which is a skill we would like to see. Yeah. You know, I mean, it's, it's something you learn by doing as well, right? And I'm Being not creative. requiring them to all come back and blanket statement share what they did, because mm-hmm. then I'm taking control again. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. It's happening organically, and I can step back and let that happen and yeah. not micromanage it, which yeah. is really important. Right, 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 right. Um, anything else about ways in which you see more learning or different kinds of learning taking place in your classrooms? I mean, that was pretty nice. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I'd say one of the big things for me has been um, the structures of uh, collaborative learning. Like, I, uh, I felt like four years ago I did group work pretty well, mm-hmm. but the structures that we've created in our classrooms or in my classroom um, have helped students who had previously lower status or smaller voices mm. become much larger. And mm-hmm. like Katie mm-hmm. was just saying, like it, I'm finding that more of them are open to sharing with others and sharing the wealth. Um, yeah. So that's yeah. been a really big thing for me. Yeah. And, and of course, the people who are teaching in that situation learn more deeply than if they just read a book and answered a question on a test because they have to think on their feet about what are you trying to get to. The, you know, the students who are trying to learn are, are probing the people who think they know it already. They're, they're probing how well do you, how deeply do you understand this? And it debunks the myth that participation means I raise my hand and say it in front of the whole classroom. <laughs> I'm still undoing that ideology with kids. So yeah, a yeah. lot of their self goals, like we do a lot of goal setting, is mm-hmm. I need to participate more. If I raise my hand, call on me, which is great, but I have to remind them, well, how else are you participating? When you talk in a group of four, that's really powerful. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Because as a teacher, I stand and talk in front of people often yeah. because it's my job, but most future career paths you take won't require you to stand up in front of everyone and talk every day. Right, right. You have to also know how to talk in a small group, right. which is and a good life skill. Yes, and uh, in terms of learning, obviously kids are much more comfortable talking to three people who they trust and have worked with than saying something in front of 28 people. Yeah where you might be wrong, <laughs> you know, and you yeah. don't want people to see that. Yeah. So, yeah, yeah. So that raises the question, you know, the idea of um, raising your hand. I was just watching a Harry Potter movie uh, <laughs> last night, and Hermione is going, ooh, ooh, you know, want call on me. Um, that kind of, um, uh, I'm a good student because you're noticing that I have a question. Yeah. That's how I prove that I'm a good student is being replaced with something else. But the habits that they've formed, students who are good at school and students who get bad grades, the habits that they've formed over time, uh, you know, the, this, this uh, umbrella term that, that I use, doing school, um, what does that look like? I mean, that's the thing that you're trying to undo and rewind from. What does that look like in your classes? When kids walk in and they're doing school, what are they actually doing? And how does that get in the way of actually learning? Because it's not the same as learning, right? So, like, they're getting ready to take a test, or they're going, you know, how, how is it that they go through the motions, but you know it, it's, it's really superficial? 
So they have a contract that they complete of all the work they did throughout yeah. the unit. And yeah. there's lots of little things that we check for quality and then they get a pretty good grade on it because everything's done. And then they bomb the test. Mm. There's a disconnect. Yeah. But what's powerful is we have space to have that conversation with them. Mm-hmm. I don't have to put a heavy hand down, you know, bang my fist down and say, you did this wrong. It's yeah. up to them to make that connection. Well, actually, I copied all the answers down from the solution guide. Mm-hmm. Okay, so how, how did that go? Yeah. How's that going for you? Yes. <laughs> so you didn't learn. So what are you going to try differently? I'm yeah. not mad at them. I don't get mad at my students anymore. Uh, There's just no space for that. Uh, but the structures are there for them to make the connections. Yeah. Not saying that they all do. No. But no. it's there. I don't have to lecture them. Right. Yeah, and like Katie's saying, because we're focusing on high quality work over quantity, usually by the end of a contract, it's become apparent what they're not doing well. So mm-hmm. you're either not doing work in a timely fashion, or you're not correcting it well. You're not checking it carefully. You're not being metacognitive. So that's apparent on their contract. So then it's like putting a flashlight on what the problem is. So much so that, like Katie said, the kids can realize it on their own. And um, it's things that I didn't notice before. Like when I always saw the disconnect between work completion or effort and test, but before I wasn't able to pinpoint what it was and I certainly wasn't able to help my students pinpoint what it was Yeah, because I wasn't saying to them doing problems is not the thing Mm -hmm. now I'm saying to them doing problems is good but what happens after you do the problems that's the thing that's four out of five in our quality checklist four Mm -hmm. of the five things happen after you do the math or while you're doing the math but they're not about just doing a problem right and so because that's the conversation because there's space for that conversation it's so obvious at the end of a unit what's wrong and students who are failing are not saying i'm bad at math they're saying I didn't do any of this. (laughs) Right. You didn't do anything for three weeks and you didn't learn. Yeah. And they're like, right. Yeah. We all make choices. Yeah. Right. And and choices have consequences. Right. And then it's, okay, what can I do? Do, do more. Yeah. What's the first step in that? Yeah. And so it's not relearn this, although that is also important. That might happen later, but the first step is do more. Let's start with doing this one thing that you weren't doing before. Yeah. And it just yeah. really highlights yeah. um, the learning process, which is what I've come to care about deeply. Mm. And it makes the learning process, it turns on the learning process for students. They don't have a degree in educational psychology. Mm. They don't understand how knowledge is transferred. They don't know about the curriculum transfer model. What they know about is their experience. And if I put in a structure where they can see their experience over the course of a chapter, yeah. then it becomes obvious what their process is to them. So everything you've just been talking about, I think, has to do with metacognition. Mm-hmm. The, you know, the self-awareness. Once you've done something, say you've got some of it right and some of, it's wrong, some of it wrong, rather than moving on and leaving the wreckage behind, um, you're, you're, the, the real focus is on, oh, I made a mistake. Well, how did I make that mistake? And now what am I going to do about it? And the second piece is uh, ownership, is a sense of responsibility for learning. That it's not your job to make them learn, it's their job to figure out how to learn. And you're creating a structure for that to take place. Exactly. Yeah. Okay. So, we got metacognition. How about tenacity? How does that pop up 
where kids would otherwise give up. I mean, we were talking a little while ago, uh, Katie, you were talking about um, what, what is now called the growth mindset as opposed to the fixed mindset. Oh, I'm no good at math, right? And then that door has shut. And it's a way of not getting specific, like you were just talking about, Jody, of um, what is it that I don't understand here? How do I go about and, and then the tenacity piece is, then I keep pushing. And I trust that if I push hard enough, eventually I'll get this. That's the growth mindset. So how, did, how does that happen in your classroom? They have to be taught to do that, right? So what is it that they're doing on a day-to-day -day basis where they, where they bump into, oh, I, I guess I have to keep pushing here. Uh, what structures work, work for that? <coughs> One of the big things for me, I'm just gonna keep going back to, um, the same structure of creating a space for students to talk. Yeah. Um, and so with me not taking so much airspace, I'm allowing students more time to think in class individually, but also converse with each other. Yeah. Um, and like you're saying, Larry, having students be able to trust each other enough so that they're opening up and showing vulnerability, like I don't understand something, but maybe one of my peers knows. Mm -hmm. um, and that has helped a lot of my students um, over the, uh, like Katie was saying, like this year more than ever, I feel like hmm. um, more of my students have a better understanding of content, but also being able to persevere through problems that they've never seen. Yeah. Um, whether that's by themselves or with each other yeah. or in a small group, um, that that's definitely something that I'm seeing a lot more this year compared to say four yeah. years ago. Yeah. The, there's a lot of positive peer pressure going on. So like <laughs> for a change. When you when you feel like you're in a place where you're implementing the system well that works for you, enough students will buy into it because all students deep down want to do well. Nobody wants to fail. Yeah. No matter what level kid you're teaching or whatever category you've put a kid in. Yeah. It's it's human nature to want to succeed in my opinion. So there's enough kids cool kids, not cool kids, the kid who's friends with everyone, someone has bought into it. Yeah. And when they're sitting doing a problem and their friend doesn't get it, they healthily, if that's a word, call each other out. Yeah. Like, come on, bro. Yeah. You can do this. Yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. I don't want to. Well, it's easy. Yeah. And it, I can't make that happen. Right. That's positive peer pressure. Right. That you can learn this. Right. Not, come on, be like me. And they want to be like each other. Yeah. They're yeah. adolescents. That's, well, yeah, that's the thing. It's a cultural, it's a cultural shift. The classroom culture uh, has that as, uh, as uh, this is what we do here. Yeah. And that, uh, that compels people being teenagers and being social creatures. So um, it's about time to wrap this up. Is there anything else, let's say you, you were talking to somebody who knew nothing about what we're talking about here, nothing about this approach. What would you say the, is there anything I haven't asked you that you would like to make sure that they know about? That, that something that you've experienced that you know isn't a common experience in school that means, that, that's meaningful? I, yeah, I can actually. So um, a few years ago before I started this, there would be days I'd get back to my desk and I couldn't take attendance because I didn't know who was in the room. <laughs> Full yeah. disclosure. Yeah. Because, I mean, that is just, I'm just putting it out there. Yes. Love it. Because yeah. that, 
yeah. yeah. And, and I'm like, wow. And I reflected, wow, that's a problem. I yeah. didn't get FaceTime with my kids. Yeah. And I realized that like the job I was doing was the wrong job. And mm. so, so because my job has become being a facilitator and creating structures in a space where kids can take their learning to the next level instead of being the person just teaching the math and delivering instruction. Mm. Um, it frees me up to have conversations with kids that I didn't have time to have before. And mm. the conversations are about their personal lives, about their learning, about what's going on in class, about yeah. math, yeah. but they're individual or small group. And I know so much more about my students than I ever did, yeah. which, creates a relationship so yeah. I always cared about my students sure. because I care about them yeah but yeah. now I care about them as individuals yeah, yeah. and it's a, a much deeper level it's a totally different thing and attendance has gotten easier yes and now <laughs> attendance is very easy <laughs> anything else you guys want to add I well I, I briefly mentioned it before um, it's really easy as teachers to get caught up in the negative mm -hmm. or as humans not yeah. just teachers. Right, and, right, right. Um, it's really easy to blame <coughs> students when things are going wrong. And yes. so this process has allowed me, as an already decently compassionate person, to become even more compassionate. Yes. Um, yeah. I don't get mad at my students that mm. often. Mm -hmm. I, I just don't because yeah. it's not that big of a deal. Yeah. I know there's another layer to it. And the yeah. math, it, I think it goes back to a quote that you have in one of your pieces of, who students become is so much more important than what they know. Yeah. And so that has allowed me to become a more compassionate, patient, understanding person. Wow. Yeah. That's great. Mm -hmm. Kind of to just piggyback off of that, um, for me it's been taking a step back from the math and it's not the most important thing in the world mm -hmm. and that there are skills that I want my students to learn in this safe space of high school yeah. so that they can continue to build them and use them as they go to college, vocational school, as they begin their careers because ultimately like they're going to use all of those skills yeah. far more than anything I teach them yeah. in algebra too. Yeah. <laughs> or Un math unless math. unless they become math teachers. Right. Which, <laughs> which I've also which, tried to cultivate. That's right. <laughs> and and if they're enjoying what they're doing more, that's more likely incidentally. Right. So, yeah. Right. Oh. Thank you all very much. This has been great. Yeah, we'll do this again. <laughs> I would like to thank my guests, Jody Trepani, Katie Kanokita, and Gary Chu for participating in this first full episode of the podcast. And I'd like to thank you for listening. If you would like to subscribe to this podcast, if you like what you heard, uh, you can go to iTunes under This Changes Everything, search for that, and uh, subscribe. You can also review it on iTunes, which of course uh, will help spread the word. Also, if you want to contact me directly, you can reach me at larrygenie at gmail.com. That's L-A-R-R-Y-G-E-N-I at Comcast. You can also uh, go directly to my website and read about these topics. Um, I've written two full books. They're both available on the website at www.genieconsulting.org. Uh, there you'll find those books and a blog and a lot of materials that are freely available for teachers. On our next uh, episode, I'm planning on meeting together with one or two other teachers who uh, are also in the process of implementing this to dive into the nuts and bolts of how it actually gets implemented. Um, I hope you'll join me. Thanks. <laughs>